0: Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast for people living multicultural lives. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a Black woman married to a Spanish man raising three bilingual, biracial, bicultural children. I'm also a journalist and the author of the book Same Family, Different Colors, confronting colorism in America's diverse families. Some people call me a cultural critic or a pop culture pundit. I call myself a diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here for another fascinating conversation that meets at the intersection of race and real life. On episode 38 of the My American Melting Pot podcast, I am so excited to have award-winning author Erin Entrada Kelly join me to talk about her brand new book, We Dream of Space. We're also going to be talking about her impressive career writing middle grade novels and why children and adults need diverse books. Since Erin is also a Filipina-American, and it's the middle of May, we're also going to be talking about Asian American Heritage Month. Erin Entrada Kelly is a New York Times bestseller whose work has been translated into several languages. Her book, Hello Universe, won the Newbery Medal in 2018, and her book, Lalani of the Distant Sea, was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Public Library, The Hornbook, Book, Book List, Book Page, and many others. Erin is the author of six books in total, all of which are Junior Library Guild selections. Her latest book, We Dream of Space, is her first work of historical fiction. It's set in January 1986 in the weeks leading to the Challenger disaster. Now, I'm so excited to dive into this conversation with Erin, but before we do, I have two pieces of news that I need to share. There's some good news and some not-so-good news. Let's start with the not-so-good news. And that simply is... Thanks to the Rona, my recording sessions have been a little bit more bare bones. Usually we record in the beautiful WRTI studios in Center City, Philadelphia, and now we're recording in my basement, in my dining room. I have family, I have a dog, so I really apologize for the quality of our audio, which isn't as good as it normally is, but I hope you bear with me and understand that I'm still trying to make the best content as possible. Now, the other news is very good news, and that simply is, make sure you listen all the way through to the end of the episode, where I will be sharing a special giveaway for our listeners. All right, so let's get to our conversation with Erin. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Erin Entrada Kelly. Thank you, Lori. So... Season four, the season that we're in right now for the podcast, is all about family, as a matter of fact. But we're looking at family in a lot of different ways. But I thought that Erin's work fits nicely into this category of family. Obviously, because she's writing for a middle grade audience, most of her characters are of that age group and obviously have to deal with families. And her concept of family really is very diverse and most of her characters are in some way kind of struggling with or figuring out what family means. So I wanted to talk to her about that. But also, I just love Erin's commitment to diversity when she writes. All of her characters in her books tend to be, let's say, diverse. And I'm putting air quotes around that because Erin has a very expansive concept of what diverse means. And I want to dive into that as well. So Before we get into your specific books, Erin, can you tell our audience how you actually became
1: a fiction writer? Sure. So it's been actually since I was about eight years old. That's around the age I started writing stories. So it's kind of been a lifelong trajectory. It wasn't until I was in my 20s, though, that I committed to writing for children. And that's because I had published several short stories for adults. And I realized once those stories started getting published that a lot of them had characters who were between the ages of eight and 12. And so it dawned on me that there was something about that age group that was really compelling. So I decided to start writing for and about people within that age group, usually uh, 12. Now, if I'm not mistaken, did you start your career as a journalist though? I did. I did. So as I was growing up, you know, I had this dream of being an author, but I knew that you couldn't just be an author and, and make a living that way. So I decided to focus my attention on careers that also spoke to my love of writing, so I started as a journalist, I actually started as a proofreader at a newspaper, and I worked my way up as I was going to college to a feature writer for the paper and Then I became a magazine editor and then, as I was doing all this, I was writing books on the side, trying you know publishing short stories, trying to find an agent, and all that good stuff and It was only until um Hello Universe won the Newberry in 2018 that I was able to quit working full-time and just write books. That's the
0: dream, isn't it? It is. (laughs) It is. It's a good dream. So to go back a little bit, so I just told this story to somebody that when I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a novelist, but that's not a job. So I thought, what's a job that's a writer? A journalist, right? So that's what I did. I said, I'll be a journalist because that's a writer with a paycheck.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. And, you know, not necessarily a big paycheck, but it's a paycheck. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I loved being a journalist. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, this was a, the newspaper before the Internet took everything over. And, you know, one of the last major news stories I covered was Hurricane Katrina, Uh, before I left the newspaper business. So you meet so many people and hear so many stories that you would have never heard otherwise. You go to places you would have never gone otherwise. It's really incredible. You meet people from all different walks of life. So I actually really miss it a lot. I love doing it.
0: I completely feel like working as a journalist taught me so much about characters. It obviously allowed me to learn how to write on deadline. I mean, I think that's one thing that allows me to be, I don't want to say prolific, but I can get a book done because I understand how to, what a deadline is. Mm -hmm. What do you think you've taken from your journalism career to your fiction career?
1: That is definitely one of the big ones is the ability to write on deadline and to write to a specific word count that's either given to me or in my head. And I think A few other things that I really took away is, you know, when you're a journalist, you have to be able and willing to talk to people and approach people with questions, which when you're an author, you know, you have to do that when you're doing research. Like with Hello Universe, I had a character who is deaf. And so I didn't want to just do online research. I wanted to do real research, talk to someone face to face. So you have to be willing to go up to people or email people or call people out of the blue and talk to them. Uh, I think another thing that was really important that I took away from journalism is kind of like what you said, character. I remember early in my career, one of this, you know, wizened old newspaper man kind of sat me down and he said, listen... People don't really care about statistics or numbers or facts, but they do care about other people. So when you're writing your, you know, gathering your news stories and reporting on your news stories, of course you want to include information and facts and statistics where it makes sense. But he said to get them to care about those things, they have to care about real people. So really focus on people and what is that connection that connects all of us and Where can you find that? And how can you interject that into your stories? And that was a really great lesson, obviously, for for any kind of writing, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the characters that I've met in my journalism work often end up in my creative writing, or they stick in my head. And I think, ooh, (laughs) that person would be a great character in fiction, right? Yeah. So speaking of characters... I noticed that many of the characters in your book are also Filipina. Like you just mentioned, you had a deaf character in your one of your books, Hello Universe. So talk to me about your choice to make certain characters, let's say multicultural or differently abled. Is that an agenda or is that just the character that
1: you see for that story? So when I was growing up and I was a little eight, nine or 10 year old writing these stories, all the stories that I wrote had white characters with white families with blue eyes. And, you know, my family didn't look like that. My my father's white, my mother's Filipino, you know, we ate strange foods that my mother would, would cook in the kitchen. And not only was I not surrounded by other families that were multicultural, there was no, Well, let's say I didn't have easy access to books, movies, television. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, pop culture very much revolved around white society, you know, books, especially, which I devoured. You did not see very many marginalized cultures or immigrant stories, certainly not immigrant stories that were based in Louisiana, which is where I was growing up. So... It didn't even occur to me, I don't think, to write a story, even into adulthood, where the characters were biracial or someone was from another country or what have you. It just didn't, it didn't seem like something that was done. So it didn't even occur to me until much later when I decided to actually write for children. And I sat down and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to write something that's kind of like my story. It's what I know best. So... I sat down to write my first book Blackbird Fly which is it's very much informed by my growing up in a household with a mother who was from another country and all the cultural pushes and pulls that come along with that and the cultural resistance you know I had a lot of resistance to the to the Filipino side of my identity because I Viewed it as the thing that made me different from everyone else and the reason why you know I was teased or the reasons why I didn't fit in. so I very much had resisted that and whenever i I came into adulthood and realized that it was something to be celebrated and not pushed against, I thought about that twelve year old girl and how she felt, and I decided to use that to inform my first book, and I wasn't sure if it wasn't even that long ago. It was in 2015. But even then, there weren't a slew of books on the shelves for children with all these different viewpoints, at least not yet. So I wasn't sure if people would react well to it, but I just wrote the story that that I could tell. And it just happened to coincide with a surge that we're seeing of marginalized voices increasingly on bookshelves. So it was important for me because I want other little errands who are you know, coming up and, and feeling that same resistance and cultural shame or even just shame at who they are no matter what aspect of that is for them. To be able to see themselves in the book that I wrote and, and feel like someone understands them and you know, kind of let them know that, that they're not alone, that there's other kids out there who are going through the same things that they're going through. So that was my motivation or inspiration for writing Blackbird Fly. And then my other books, which also have um, Filipino characters or Filipino culture woven throughout, again, are very much informed by, you know, we, we draw from our personal well of knowledge and emotion. And that's where my, you know, that's the well that I draw from a lot because it informs a lot of, who I am and how I view myself and how I view the world, you know, it all kind of plays into that. And I feel like you don't have to be part of one culture to read and empathize and understand people from another culture. We're all at the end of the day, people with human connections and there's certain things that are universal. That's another thing that I love about middle grade is that, you know, no matter what your background is, there are things that are universal, like, you know, wanting to fit in, but also wanting to stand out feeling misunderstood, not quite understanding who you are as a person yet, figuring out your place in the family, you know, all that stuff. I think all of us feeling lonely, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. We've all experienced that at some point. And when I think about diversity and, you know, that's kind of a word that I I use air quotes around as well, because it can mean so many different things. So not only do I want to depict young characters who looked like I did when I was 12 or have families that have some of the same characteristics that mine did when I was 12. I also think about wanting to depict the world as it is. And we live in a diverse multicultural society in which the majority will soon enough become the minority. And it makes sense that books would reflect the multicultural society that we live in. So with Hello Universe, for example, uh, Virgil is Filipino-American, his friend Kaori is Japanese-American, and Valencia is the character who is deaf. And it, I wouldn't say it was an agenda. It was more like, okay, well, this is what our society looks like, so therefore, why wouldn't it reflect on the page? And diversity, as you said, means a lot of things. It can mean differently abled. It can mean neurodiverse. It can mean religion, culture, ethnicity. It's so many different things and every, everyone deserves to see themselves on a page or on a screen. No one needs to be excluded or invisible in our society because we're all here together and we're all worthy of having our stories being told.
0: Oh, I feel like giving a little round of applause. That was so well said. I know you kind of mentioned this before, but let's go back to that choice to make your work middle grade focused. Because, frankly, I think it's a kind of a tricky age to get in terms of writing. You know, it's not the young adult teen book that pretty much is an adult book. Obviously, it's not a picture book. It's this very interesting in between place. First, I want to know more as a writer why you found your sweet spot there and also. Talk a little bit more about what you see, you know, these issues that you're talking about of wanting to fit in and things
1: like why you see that as a middle grade touch point. I think writers, you know, find their voice where they find their voice, if that makes sense. So whenever I was trying to write these grown up novels, they would run out of steam after about page 50. I just could not latch on. I could not finish it, you know, Um but whenever I started whenever that light bulb went off and I started writing for that age group, it actually came I mean, you know, I don't want to sound too woo woo about it, but, but it actually felt very natural. So um hey, we I th- like
0: woo woo here on the melting pot. The better the more the woo-woo the better it is. Okay, well it was very woo. Let your woo woo out. <laughs> um
1: whenever I started writing in that voice. It just felt very organic and natural to me and it still does. You know, I also write picture books and I have a chapter book series launching next year. And those were also wonderful to write, of course, but middle grade is just like it's just like slipping into a pair of comfortable shoes. And I think it's because that age for me was is very palpable, you know, and I can remember what it felt like to be You know, elementary school is a little fuzzy, high school is even fuzzier, but middle school is very clear to me. And I think because, speaking of the sweet spot of middle grade, it's because you're a child, but you're not a little kid, but you're not a teenager. You've kind of crossed over this invisible threshold where you have all these hormones and all these feelings and thoughts you didn't have before. Meanwhile, your body's going through all these weird changes. And all of a sudden, things that weren't important before start to become important, you know, around middle school, and it can be very confusing. And in the meantime, you're you're really trying to figure out how you can be yourself, especially if your peers are telling you that whoever you are is not the right thing to be. So you want to try to be yourself, but you also want to fit in. You want to be accepted. You want to stand out, but not too much. I mean, it's just this age of a lot of contradiction and confusion and i think that just lends itself for great storytelling at least for the kinds of stories i want to tell which are stories of self-love, self-acceptance. i think that is a period of time when young people need that most because and maybe even they need it before they they enter the lion's den of middle school, right? so that they're prepared and they have all the tools they need. so There's no other age than, you know, 11, 12, and 13, for better or worse. And, you know, I feel like I want to write books where young people feel like they have some kind of tools to navigate this brave new world that they've entered in unwittingly.
0: And, you know, sometimes I feel like some of your books really feel like you can really see that these books are coming from a place where it's almost like you're saying, I understand young 11, 12-year-old. Like, I know how you feel. Here's a character that you're going to identify with and you're going to see how they went through it and they got through it and you will too. Which leads me to We Dream of Space. Tell us about this book, your latest book that really just came out. I mean, we're recording this episode in mid-May, and the book officially came out... May 5th. May 5th, 2020, yep. So May 5th, 2020, so it's just been out, a little more than a week. Tell us about this story that takes place in 1986 in the lead-up to the Challenger disaster.
1: Where did this idea come from? And tell us a little bit more about the book. So I knew I wanted to write about the Challenger disaster only because... The disaster happened when I was in elementary school. It was the first major news event, I think, that I can remember from growing up. And it was such a big news story. And the news played it, you know, this was before the 24 hour news cycle, but the news played it, that footage over and over of the explosion. And, you know, at the time I thought it was very sad. It's not like it upended my life in any any real way, but I just, it, it left an imprint that stayed with me. And I can't explain why. Maybe it's just that there was so much buildup to the launch and it was like a collective excitement and anticipation. And then just thinking about putting myself in their shoes and seeing them board the shuttle and smiling and waving and knowing that they they didn't make it. It really just left an imprint on me. and so I knew as an adult that I wanted to write about the Challenger in some way. But I also wanted to write, you know, speaking of representation in books, a couple of things that I think are important to represent in books are a dysfunctional home life. So I really wanted to write about a family that has somewhat of a toxic environment wherein the parents they're together. And they have these three children who are siblings, and the book is told from each of their, the siblings' point of view. And the parents, they fight a lot. They're very unkind to each other. And these three siblings, Bird, Fitch, and Cash, are all trying to navigate this home life while also trying to navigate their own lives as three siblings in seventh grade together. So... Bird and Fitch are twins, and they're both 12. And Cash is 13, but he's failed 7th grade, which I think is also important that we have some of that representation in books. We don't see a lot of characters who have failed grades or subjects, and I think that's important. So they're all in 7th in grade together, and they have this tricky home life. They're trying to figure out their own lives. The only thing that these siblings have in common because they're not very close at the beginning of the book. They're floating in their own orbits. The only thing they have in common is a science teacher, Miss Salonga, who is very excited about the Challenger launch and has built her curriculum during the month of January around the launch so that the students can get excited and kind of live vicariously through this launch. And Bird, um, whose real name is Bernadette, she wants to be NASA's first female shuttle commander. So she's really excited about the launch. Her brothers don't really care much about it, but she's really excited about it. So the Challenger narrative is kind of this the foundational thread that runs throughout. But it's it's really a story about family, about siblings, about the ways that adults are often hypocritical, meaning that, you know, her parents, I mean, their parents tell them to be kind to others and to not use bad language, but they use it toward each other. Also, Bird's mother tells her that, you know, looks aren't important, but then she also chastises her. if She eats sugary cereal or gains weight and things like that. So I think another thing that that I've wanted to write about for a long time is the ways that parents, grown-ups, adults, kind of operate under this uh, do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do rule. And I remember when I was, you know, their age, when I was 12, 13, I absolutely recognized it when it was happening. And I think, you know, respect works both ways. And so you can't tell your children to do one thing and then show them it's something else. I think it creates a really troubled dynamic. So I knew I wanted to write about that. So that kind of all came together at a crossroads and became We Dream of Space.
0: Just out of curiosity, what
1: ethnic background are your characters in this book? So the Thomas family is white and the teacher, Miss Salonga, is Filipino-American. And there are some, not necessarily a big part of the book, but in the book, Bird had, there's a boy in her class named Devante who is African-American. And the other girls in the class kind of whispered to Bird like, oh, I think Devante likes you. And what are you going to do about it? Because You know, my dad would kill me if I entered into an interracial relationship. And there's that kind of hush-hush dialogue going on as well. And I think there's this important moment, at least I hope it reads as an important moment, where one of Bird's classmates says, you know, my father would kill me if I got into an interracial relationship. And Bird realizes that she has no idea how her parents would react, what they even think about those kinds of things, because there's so much distance between... The parents and their children, that bird realizes she doesn't know. When her friend says, what would your dad say? She realizes she has no idea because she's, they're so out of touch with each other.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. And I'm, I don't want this to come off in the wrong way. Melting Pot community, please don't send me nasty emails. But I'm really happy that you made the family that's dysfunctional
1: white. Was that a conscious choice? What a great question. You know, no, it wasn't. It was just, no, it wasn't. I mean, honestly, my characters, whenever I conceive of of my stories, the family, the characters really just come to me as they are, if that makes sense. And I think kind of going back to the idea of diversity being an agenda or like a, a conscious thing, it is and it isn't, right? So my characters come to me how they come to me, whatever ethnic racial abledness orientation they have. And I think, you know, often they come to me diversely, if that's a word, I don't know if that's a <laughs> word, but we'll use it. Uh, you know, yeah, because that's how I view the world, as we all should. I think, I think the problem is that a lot of us, you know, I get I get a lot of questions about, you know, who can write what and this question of, you know, own voices and not that we want to go down the, our rabbit hole. But my thing is that, you know, if you're imagining your world, your characters, and, and they live and they operate in this world where there's no diversity, and I'm not even just talking about race, I'm talking about able-bodiedness, orientation, gender expression, you know, it makes me wonder why the world doesn't organically appear to you in that way. Does that make sense? So I think, I think if you're sitting down and you're creating something and the world appears to you in this monolith and homogenous image, then I think, you know, that's the moment where you need to, you know, sit down and question yourself. I think the problem is that a lot of times we don't want to question ourselves and why this is the immediately the thing that we jump to. And, and that's what, you know, I try to do. And I try to encourage writers who who want to write honest, genuine stories that are well-represented, you know, I encourage them to do that as well. You've actually
0: said how I see the world. So if I'm writing, I do see the world in multiple colors, right? Like if I'm thinking of characters or if I'm, you know, just whatever it is, I see it with an Asian girl and a Black boy and a mixed race I don't know, Icelandic and Venezuelan person, exactly you know, sitting around and having the conversation, whatever it is, because that's the world I live in. and I think that it makes perfect sense when you say, "Hey, yeah, this was the character that came to me." It usually is a reflection of the world that we inhabit anyway. And more often than not, people who don't live like that find it remarkable, right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So I want to jump over to a very specific question, which is, you know, we understand how necessary it is for um, people to see themselves represented. And then we also know that there is still a dearth of representation in the popular culture kind of output. So we're in the middle of this global pandemic. We're in the middle of Social isolation, social distancing because of COVID-19. There's been a large uptick of discrimination and racial violence against Asian Americans. And the conversations that I've seen coming out of this uptick in discrimination and violence has been, you know, this conversation about Asian Americans mm-hmm. continuously being outsiders in America. You know, they're the model minority until they aren't. And then mm-hmm. they become the automatic scapegoat for bringing in the otherness or whatever it is. How are you taking in that conversation about the
1: sense of where Asian Americans fit in American society? I've been obviously following and kind of devouring this news. And you know what? I'm kind of a history buff. So I kind of think of it in the context of this country has used scapegoats since it was colonized. Mm. So it's not like this comes as any great shock to me. And it probably, unfortunately, probably doesn't come as a great shock to anyone else. So I think of it in that historical context. I think of it, it's very, of course, disenchanted, but I was already disenchanted, Lori, I have to say, because (laughs) so many terrible things have been happening that I'm I'm just kind of like, okay, this is par for the course. But I definitely was not surprised. I think of it as you know, for me, because I'm half Filipino, half white, there's, you know, half of people see me and think, what are you? Right. And then another half of people see me and they don't, they just think, you know, I'm a white woman. So it's kind of like, I haven't had the uh, fear and trepidation that a lot of Asian Americans have had going out into Society walking their dog, going to the grocery store, being yelled at by people and spit on by people. But I've been following this, and it, it just becomes very overwhelming, and it's rage-inducing. I mean, every there's other things that are. I was already kind of ragey, you know, of course already by about a million other things. But it's just, it's more of the same. I feel like I, I hate to say that because. Our society, as I said, have used scapegoats for hundreds of years. There's always an other that has been blamed for the ills of our society, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's quote-unquote taking away jobs, whether it's um, crime, whatever it may be. Our society is very adept at blaming others for things that go wrong. So You know, I'm taking it all in, I'm following it, I'm internally weeping for people like um, Kelly Yang, who is another author friend of mine who has has been, uh, she's written about her experiences being yelled at, people telling her to go back where she came from, all these kinds of things. I'm just, I'm absorbing it, it's overwhelming, it's saddening, as are many other things that have happened and continue to happen but it's also not surprising. And that makes me sad as well, right? I mean, it's sad whenever we we see these things. And it's not that we're desensitized to it because it still makes us angry and sad, but we're not surprised. I mean, it would be nice to live in a society where these things surprise and shock us, you know, but they don't, as I'm sure you would agree. It's just kind of like, oh, this is another incident for me to have my heart broken over and to be angry about. But yet I'm not surprised. And the fact that we're not surprised, I think, is telling. Exactly. I mean,
0: I don't think I'm surprised. I guess I'm, like you said, I'm heartbroken. hmm And it, it just kills me. You know, I have seen too many people, friends of mine, and people who I follow on social talk about, personally, not just incidents of where their kids are being bullied on the playground, but just their fear, their fear of going outside, their fear of sneezing in public and having people recoil in horror, right? Mm-hmm. Or run from them or just whatever might happen, that they are afraid to go outside. So the second question then is, how do you feel your your work as a writer can help, if it can at all, challenge what's happening. Like how, you know, like you said, this is historical. This is not something that just popped up with COVID, but do you see your work in any way kind of making this treatment and I'm saying specifically Asian Americans, but because that's the situation we're talking about right now, but do you see your work as in some way helping to change this trajectory that we kind of seem to be on in the United States about discrimination, racism, and xenophobia, and just demonizing the other, whatever the other is.
1: I certainly hope so. And and that was actually my motivation for writing Lalani of the Distant Sea. So a lot of people have asked, you know, I was writing realistic fiction, and all of a sudden this fantasy comes out. And it came about because, you know, in early 2016, I was actually working on We Dream of Space. I was sketching it out, I had it in my head. And when the election happened, Again, I wasn't surprised the way it went, but I was heartbroken and extremely angry, as were many people and, and the world had kind of shifted on its axis. I kind of felt like I wanted to do something you know I threw myself into volunteerism but but I felt like i I just I really wanted to do something you know something with a capital s so I sat down and i I really thought about what I want to say, what things are important to me, what I want to celebrate what I want to encourage others to celebrate. And this book came, uh, Leilani of the Distant Sea. And it's about a girl. It's inspired by Filipino folklore. Leilani is basically me. She's just this little 12-year-old girl. She's not predestined or pre-chosen or anything like that. She is driven by compassion, empathy, and kindness, which I think in our society has not been celebrated as it should. You know, we, we tend to embrace big egos and swagger and all this stuff, but Lilani is none of that. She's just a girl who loves her mother and her community and wants to do the right thing. And even in my journal, I was looking through my journal from that time the other day, and it just said, you know, I'm so angry. I want to do something. I'm going to write this book It may not be well-received, it may not be loved, but at least I'll know that I did something. And I really wanted to celebrate, you know, first of all, everyone in the book is brown. Um, Second of all, Lalani and her friends Hetsby and Veda, they are, they're not your typical heroes. They're kind of, um, especially Lalani and her friend Hetsby are very quiet and unsure of themselves and afraid of a lot of things but I really wanted to celebrate the power of ordinary people, people who have not been predestined, people who are not in positions of power, people who have no magic to wield, just ordinary people doing extraordinary things and their ability to galvanize other people to do extraordinary things, simply through the power of hope, compassion, empathy, all those things. So my answer to your question of, you know, I hope my books do that. And it's what I feel like I can do. It helps me channel some of that sadness and rage. Um, And I think all of my books, at least I intend them to celebrate the underdog. You know, I'm, I'm very big on the underdog, the person who is glossed over, the person who is overlooked, and their ability to do extraordinary things. You know, it's, it's easy to do extraordinary things when you have the means and the wealth and the position, but when you're just an ordinary person who doesn't have all those things, you can still do amazing things and change the world, and that's, that's what I hope all my books say to readers. That's my hope anyway.
0: I think that's excellent. And I think that's what, you know, as writers, you know, stories are powerful. I mean, I can think back to so many books that I read when I was young that made me think things that nobody was telling me in my real life. And particularly as a Black girl growing up in a mostly white, you know, mostly white spaces, I didn't have a lot of role models that looked like me. So I remember reading books that made me think, oh, wow, there are people that look like me that are doing extraordinary things. I mean, some of them were, like, I remember (laughs) when I was, like, just in, like, first and second grade, I was obsessed with Wilma Rudolph because I read a book about her, right? And then there were stories about other people, and they weren't always Black people, but other, like you said, underdogs, because that's how I saw myself, doing really extraordinary things. One of them was being a writer. And hello, <laughs> <laughs> look where I am today. So I hope that people are buying your books for your, their children so that they can you know, see themselves or see someone like them or identify with these characters. So Melting Pot Community, that was a hint. If you haven't bought an Aaron Kelly book yet, you should. So as we wrap up, Erin, two more questions for you. One, what do you think people should do despite the fact that we're living in difficult circumstances where we can't, you know, go out of our houses comfortably? How should people celebrate Asian American History Month, which is this month of May?
1: I think one of the best ways to celebrate is to support the work of Asian American authors. So there are many picture books, middle grade, young adult, adult novels that you can read and purchase. And you can read them together with your children, picture books, middle grade. Even when your kids learn how to read, that doesn't mean you don't read aloud to them anymore. You can still read aloud to them even when they're 12 or 13 or 14. So I think that's the biggest thing. And don't forget about things like poetry. There's a lot of amazing poets out there. I mean, there's so much work One of the greatest things that's been happening in publishing over the past five years is an increase in representation on bookshelves, and Asian Americans are part of that. And there are many resources that you can go to to find all these books. So I encourage you and urge you to do that. Uh, Kelly Yang, who I mentioned earlier, has a middle grade book, Front Desk, which is a New York Times bestseller, a great book. She has a new book out called Parachutes. Um, my fellow Filipino-American authors um, have incredible books. Randy Reby has, you know, is just nominated for the National Book Award. And, I mean, there's just so many authors out there. Jasmine Warga, which received, she received the Newbery Honor for Other Words for Home. is a great novel in verse that you can pick up. There's so much work out there that, that you can expose yourself to and your kids to. And it's just great work period for any month of the year, but especially for this month as we celebrate.
0: I can put links to those in the show notes so people can
1: can see those and find those. One of my favorite books I have to say that I've read this year so far was called A Wish in the Dark by Christina Soon tornbott And it is a retelling of Les Mis, but it's set in a Thai-inspired fantasy world. So it's an incredible book you could read with your kids. So there's just so many. There's so, so many.
0: So I'll put a couple of those links to get people started in the show notes so they can have some ideas. And of course, if you just don't have the bandwidth to read, which I understand a lot of people, you kind of either fall on either camp with the corona lockdown. I feel like some people are reading voraciously, which I am. But then other people are saying legitimately they don't have the bandwidth to read right now. They're just... They can kind of watch Netflix and that's about it. But um, I would say if you're struggling with reading like a grown-up book, you can like read one a middle-grade novel, read a kid's book. Like it's
1: still great reading and it's a little more manageable, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You do not have to be a young person to read books for young people. Absolutely. And I think there there is a misconception, I think, generally that you know, you need to have kids or be a kid to read them. But no, they're they're rich and layered. If you haven't picked one up, um, a middle grade or a young adult novel in recent years, I encourage you to do so. It's probably a lot more complex and rich and textured than you think and can make for a, a quick and pleasurable read.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not just trying to make Erin feel good because she joined my podcast today, but seriously, I'm staying up. Way too late last night reading Blackbird Fly, actually. <laughs> so, See? I mean, Erin's books are so good. Even if you don't have a middle grade person living in your house, that does not mean you will not be fully engaged. It's hopefully, just hearing what she talks about, the story, what her stories cover, hopefully has made you interested in seeing what her stories are like. So by all means, don't limit yourself if it's you don't have the middle grade reader, or whatever the the book you're thinking about picking up because it sounds interesting, but you think you're too old to read it or something, by all means, check them out. Um, And also, as I say, if you're feeling like you just can't read, but you still want to celebrate Asian American Heritage Month, think about podcasts, think about films, documentaries, just feature films. There's so much to consume to engage with this community that I feel too often gets overlooked and underreported
1: until there's a problem. Agreed. And I would also say if if you don't have the 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 energy or bandwidth to sit down and read, totally makes sense. Don't forget about audiobooks. So a lot of these books that I'm talking about have audiobooks, and it can be much easier to just throw on an audiobook while you're cooking or while you're sitting or, you know, whatever. You just, just throw it on. I was going to say while you're commuting, but probably not many of you are commuting anywhere. But... And it can be just as satisfying and then you don't have to sit there and read. You can just listen while you're doing something else.
0: Right. Although I do think I've heard a lot of people are hiding in their cars, just sitting in them <laughs> so you can sit in your car and listen to your audiobook.
1: Yeah. You can still drive around aimlessly, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to have a destination. Just no. don't get lost. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So Erin, last question for you. If you weren't writing fiction, what would you be doing? You know what? I, I, before I left and became a writer full-time, I was working as a copy editor at a Medicaid managed care company. And I actually really loved that job. So I'd still be doing something like that. And I also really wanted to be a librarian when I was younger, but where I lived, there was not a master's degree program in library science. So I was never able to get my advanced degree in library science. So that might be something else as well.
0: That's so funny. That's, I've literally been saying, one of my students a few years back told me she was going to get her degree in library science. And I was like, wait, what? That's a thing? <laughs> I was like, I want to be a librarian. Like that to me is the perfect job because I thought I wanted my own bookstore, but no, I don't want the stress. Librarian.
1: Yes. That's like the job, right? There. I feel like I'd make an excellent children's librarian. Yes, absolutely.
0: I I kind of secretly asked you that question because I thought you might say, I wasn't sure, that you might be a visual artist because, um, surprise people, not only is Erin a really wonderful writer, but she's also a great artist. And some of your artwork shows up in your new book. Yes, it does. Maybe it's in more than that in that one, but I love seeing all your sketches that you put on social media and then I see them in your new book. So... Like, are you multi-talented or how do you look at your, your
1: visual art, your sketches? You know what? I view it more as like a thing that I do for fun. So actually the chapter book series that comes out, uh, that launches next summer, I'm also illustrating it. So that's kind of how I view it. You know, I view it as something that I do that that's fun and sometimes frustrating as I'm still, you know, learning and tweaking and, but yeah, that's how I think of it. I do love art in general, you know, so uh, maybe I could also work in a museum. There are so many things, Lori, that I want to do. I don't even know what to tell you. Like, I, you know, I also teach, like adjunct teach creative writing, which I also love. I love history, so I could be a historian. I mean, I could name like 50 jobs that I would want to have. So unrelated, but
0: when's your birthday? September
1: 5th. Okay, so you're not an Aquarius. No, I'm a Virgo.
0: I'm an Aquarius, and I was going to say, I actually became, like, I really said I have to be a writer because I want to be all the things. I want all the jobs. I can see myself doing so many things, and I figured if I was a writer, I could write about all the things. I could, you know, like you said, I'm not going to be a doctor, but I could go research and spend time with a doctor and learn everything about it and write a story about a doctor, whether that was nonfiction or fiction. And get that fixed.
1: See, that's so true because lately during this lockdown, I've been thinking uh, about going back to school again and getting another master's degree in history. And I thought, why? You know, learning for learning is good, but but I need to have like a good, solid reason why to invest all that money and stuff. And then I thought, well, maybe if I get my master's in history, then I can write like a historical fiction. I mean, We Dream of Space is considered historical fiction, but it's 1986, so I don't... (laughs) I choose not to think of it that way, even though it totally is categorized as historical fiction. No, <laughs> that makes it so old. But you I'm know, historical. Yeah, we're historical. My childhood was historical. <laughs> I know it's kind of depressing. Um, you know, you're getting old when things start coming back in style that were in style when you were young. That's how you know things. The side is changing.
0: Oh my god, it's mm, yeah. Um, my child is like, you were born in the 1900s. Yes. Yes, I was. Okay. Leave me alone. Okay. So Aaron, what's, so you already mentioned that you were working on chapter books. What are we going to see next specifically from you?
1: So the chapter book series that comes out is the, the character is Marisol, a little girl named Marisol, and it's probably the most autobiographical character I've ever written. So she's a mixed race, Filipino and white. She's growing up in a small town in Louisiana she's very sweet and sensitive, but scared of a lot of things. She loves cats. Um, so she has a very, you know, rich interior life and imagination. So that's going to be the next thing that you see from me. Um, and it should be summer of next year, but of course I'm always also working on middle grade. So I'm also drafting something very, very early process. So be on the lookout for that. What do you say chapter book? What do you mean? Like, what age is that for? I'm not sure. So the books that that I write now are for ages 8 to 12. It's considered middle grade. And chapter book is like the age below that. So maybe 6 to 8, somewhere in that range. So it's kind of like you read chapter books and then you move up to middle grade. So chapter books tend to have a lot of illustrations, like shorter chapters, lots of illustrations Kind of in that Clementine Ramona family. Those are chapter books.
0: Yeah, my daughter. I'm so glad. I'll be your early reader. My daughter will be an early reader or whatever. That's that's where she is, and I love those books. And but they're hard to find. Really, really good ones. It seems like all the chapter books for that age group, girls. I shouldn't say all of them, but many of them are princesses in pink and they're white. And <gasps> yes. so Thank I'm you for am always looking for something to give my mixed brown curly haired daughter.
1: <laughs> oh, good. So there you go. I agree. And, and a lot of them are, you know, a lot of the times the characters are really precocious and mischievous and, and Marisol isn't like that. She's just a little, you know, a little girl trying to figure things out. She loves her stuffed animals. So she's very much me at that age. So I'm really excited about it. And yeah, it's for that that age group just below. Ramona, yes. Harriet yes. the Spy, you know, those kinds of books. Excellent. I loved Harriet yeah. the Spy. So you said that chapter book, will, those books will be
0: coming out in summer of 2021?
1: The first one is scheduled for summer 2021. So right now I'm working on the final edits and illustrations.
0: Well, we will be on the lookout for Marisol. That's excellent. Aaron, tell people where they can find you and follow you and your work on the interwebs.
1: My website is ErinEntradaKelley.com. I'm very active on Twitter. So find me on Twitter at Erin Also Instagram at Erin And I have a Facebook page, Erin Kelly. So I'm all over the socials, but I'm most active on Twitter.
0: Excellent. And you know what? I didn't ask you this, but I feel like it's kind of important because our theme for this season is family, and
1: you write for middle grade. Do you have any children? I do. I have a daughter who is grown. She is 23, and she lives in Burlington, Vermont. I'm very proud of her. She's getting ready to, she's thinking about going to graduate school to uh, study psychology. So I have a daughter, but she's all grown up. Do any of your characters, are any of your characters based on her? I think, like, not specifically her, but definitely elements of her and all kinds of other people infuse themselves, if that makes sense, into different characters. But I could easily write a book about her because she's got a big old personality.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you started writing, like, when your books were getting published, she was already a teenager then, right? Right.
1: Yeah. She was already a teenager and she read a lot of, in fact, she didn't even read my books until recently, like the past few years, because when she was a teenager, she was reading a lot of fantasy and books that were very different from what I was writing. And she does read a lot. So now she's read all my books, but yeah, she wasn't necessarily part of the demographic I was writing for, if that makes sense. Even though she was my kid, you'd think she would just read my books, but no, not she waited until she was in her (laughs) twenties. But I do think that's
0: really interesting for a lot of writers out there to hear because people might think, well, if I'm writing for young people, I would have to have a young person around to kind of inspire me or what have you. But really, you've pulled from your own childhood, which. Absolutely. Everybody was a child at some point. So I just think that that's important for people to hear who are maybe aspiring writers of middle grade or young adult or even children's books that. You don't have to have a child around you to tap into that mindset, to tap into that market.
1: No, no. You, all of us, like you said, all of us were children once. And some of us are still children at heart. So that's the only emotional well you need.
0: Thank you, Erin, so much for joining me on My American Melting Pot. Thank you, Lori. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Erin and Trata Kelly. I think it was pretty obvious that I enjoyed the conversation. I love talking to Erin. I think her work is so inspirational. I think her her commitment to writing for young people at that particular age is really amazing. And you know, she takes her work so seriously and she takes the thoughts and ideas and feelings of young people so seriously, which is why her work is just that good. Because she's not, you know, looking down on you know middle grade work as something somehow less than or less important or less complex or less of an art form. I hope you guys get a chance to read some of Erin's work. She is so prolific. So like I said, she's already written six books. She's working on the new series. Another new middle grade book is coming out too. So there's a lot for you to choose from. Now, if you aren't in a position to buy anything right now, remember I did promise that there would be an opportunity for a giveaway at the end of the show. And here we are at the end of the show. So Erin and her publisher are giving away one free copy of her latest book, We Dream of Space. And all you have to do is follow my American melting pot on instagram and leave a comment on the post for this episode with the hashtag we dream of space so follow us on my American melting pot on instagram that's at my American melting pot and leave us a comment on the post for this episode episode. And you can just write like, I love the show. I want a free book. Whatever you want to say, just make sure you leave the hashtag WeDreamOfSpace and you will be entered in a drawing to win a free book that will be mailed directly to you from the publisher. So not a lot of hands on that book and it'll come right to your house. Everyone who leaves a comment on our Instagram account by Monday, May 25th, by 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time will be part of the drawing and the winner will be announced on Tuesday on our Instagram account. So make sure you are tuning into the Instagram account. And all of these instructions will be on the My American Melting Pot blog. So if you want to just see those instructions again, just look at myamericanmeltingpot.com. And again, it's just as simple as leaving a little comment. And Speaking of comments, if you enjoyed today's episode and found it valuable in any way, please take a moment to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings and reviews really do help other people find the show. And I want to explain that a little bit because I always say that and I'm not sure if people understand what I mean. The fact is that as all things these days seem to be everything online is under the auspices of some sort of algorithm right so If somebody is looking for a podcast about multicultural living or diversity or bilingual children's education, anything like that, the search engines and the algorithms find the shows that have the most reviews and ratings because that is how they tell if it's a good show, if it's a worthwhile show. It could be a crappy show, but if it has a lot of ratings and a lot of reviews, then the algorithms simply read those as the best shows. So, legitimately people could be looking for a show like ours, but they'll never see My American Melting Pot if we only have five reviews or we only have five ratings. So if you take the time to just leave a rating, which is literally half a second to put a star in, whatever star you think, five stars, four stars, whatever, or you take 20 seconds to write a review. Love this show. Great show it can be that short. And all you do is need to go to Apple Podcasts to do it. Then more people will see it because the algorithms will push it up to the top when people are searching for podcasts about multicultural lifestyle, podcasts about diversity, podcasts about race and parenting, whatever it might be, all those keywords that people are looking for. So you can leave a rating or review, or you can just tell somebody about the show, which also helps spread the word. I think about it this way. If you tell a friend, then you're telling a friend about the show. If you leave a rating or review, you're telling the whole whole world about the show. Anyway, whatever you decide to do, I would be so happy if you could do something so even more people can dial in and dive into our content. And speaking of content, you know that you can find the show notes for today's episode and every other past episode on the My American Melting Pot blog, and you can also find fresh new melting pot content on the blog every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, because I write new original content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday about living a multicultural lifestyle. So it's news, it's parenting, it's pop culture, current events, reviews of books, movies, all that kind of good stuff. Again, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on the blog. And I also post every day or almost every day on the my american melting pot social handles on instagram twitter facebook all those places you also find melting pot content and you can get all the links on the melting pot blog so please check it out if you're looking for more content thank you so much and i will see you guys i'm not gonna see you because it's a podcast Ha! i will talk to you guys next friday my American Melting Pot is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you, Melting Pot community, as always, for listening, for supporting the show in the ways that you do. I so very much appreciate it, and I appreciate you. Please be well during these crazy times, take good care of yourselves, and always remember to live your life in color.